0: You're listening to Dish It Up, a monthly podcast serving up the latest news, trends, and events relating to the San Diego food scene. This podcast is recorded as a collaboration between Pacific Magazine and Facebook group Eating and Drinking in San Diego. It is released on the second Monday of each month and hosted on the UT Podcast Network. If you want to continue the conversation, be sure to visit the EDSD group on Facebook and head to pacificsandiego.com for updates on restaurant openings, new menus, chef profiles, and food forward events. Also be sure to check out Kiss My Glass, our sister podcast focusing on drinking around San Diego, which hits podcast platforms on the 4th Monday of every month. Without further ado, here's your host, Edwin Rial.
1: This is Dish It Up, a collaboration podcast between Eating and Drinking in San Diego and Pacific Magazine. Today's guest is Han Tran. She's the co-owner of Ibizu, a sushi bar in Hillcrest, and Shank and Bone, a newer restaurant in North Park. Han, how are you?
2: I'm doing well. Hi, Edwin. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Restaurants have been in your blood for a long time. Uh, even before Ibizu, which opened in 2003, mm-hmm. your family owned a restaurant or a cafe in yeah. City Heights. Can yeah. you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, my parents uh, have had a small Vietnamese cafe restaurant in City Heights called Cafe Doré. Um, they took that space over when I was 11. And they ran it for pushing t- over 25 years. I don't remember how long, but about 25 years. And um, I grew up there watching them build that and watching that. Become the Vietnamese community's, you know, go-to for really strong coffee and a really solid small menu, and that's pretty much where I cemented the the restaurant blood, and um, I've just kind of been keeping it going ever since, despite what I was planning.
1: <laughs> what were you planning?
2: I don't know. Um, I went to school, went to UCSD, graduated, got my communications degree, and. I don't know, somewhere in my early 20s, I just realized I wanted to get back into the restaurant business. And I just, by pure happenstance, you know, and and serendipity, those opportunities came to us. So, but no, I didn't want to work in the restaurants growing up. I watched my parents, like, really get their asses kicked from... You know, just working every day. Morning,
1: noon, and night. hmm
2: 365 days of the year. They took no vacations. And just watching that grind, I didn't want to do it. So I actually was like, nope, I'm going to go work for somebody and get a paycheck handed to me and go home and not think about work. And, you know, here I am <laughs> still doing it. Still doing it. <laughs> <laughs> doing it differently, but still doing it. Yeah.
1: So often what we see in San Diego and all over the country are immigrants coming to San Diego to whatever part they land in, Uh and actually doing great things like starting small businesses, starting restaurants, Uh starting cafes, diners, whatever it is, they just jump right in. Seeing how your parents did that, how does that affect your work ethic? How does that affect your sense of community Uh and pride in what you're doing?
2: Uh Well... Being in City Heights, that's where uh, the Vietnamese community kind of first took root. There and Linda Vista, I think, but City Heights is where I grew up, so that's my hood. Just watching, just the, yeah, definitely. There's a pride in the work. There's a, a work ethic like no other. Giving, coming from you know a place of war and coming into a new country and trying to build a new life, you know, there's really not an option of not working hard. You know, you really do. You have to learn a new language, and you have to raise a family. And, you know, just watching that has really affected, I think a lot of us, second generation, actually, or would I be mean, the 1.5 generation, watching our parents do that has definitely kept it really real, you know, for us. And and it, for me, it just made sure I just didn't sit on my ass. And definitely they've been an inspiration. So it's my norm, I guess, watching my mother and my father just like, Grind
1: every day. We didn't have a war in the Philippines where I'm from. Mm-hmm. But my parents also escaped the Philippines mm-hmm. due to martial law. Mm. And so seeing them work in and grinding, yep. I've always been appreciative mm. of the sacrifice because when you're in your twenties or early, you know, mid twenties, the age when my parents left the Philippines, mm-hmm. you're not only giving up what you know. The language. You're giving up seeing your family for potentially years. Yeah,
2: indefinitely. You know? Yeah. You know, like my parents were super young when they fled. They were early 20s. What was I doing in my early 20s? <laughs> <I> <laughs> not was, fleeing a country. No, not with a kid, not fleeing a country, not starting a new life. I was, you know, finishing college and partying, yeah. you know, so.
1: And then what we, you know, so often immigrants get the, you know, the brunt of, the issues that are at hand, whatever it may be, whenever they may be, it's always some immigrant group. And yet here we are, you know, striving to do great things, trying to put our kids through college, you know, and what are we doing? (laughs) We are actually living the American dream.
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. Because it's, you know, the American dream is something that's like that beacon that keeps a lot of people who come here going. You know, they, I mean, sometimes it's it's a different version of an American dream for everybody, but it's really just you can make something out of your life if you work hard enough, right? Yeah. That's essentially the American dream, ideally. And, yeah, and I've seen so many people in our, in our Vietnamese-American community here firsthand be able to do that. And, you know, how many kids are, go- are off to college because their parents, you know, tiger mom the hell out of them and <laughs> force them to go to college. But, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing to see the immigrant like tapestry. Yeah. And how how strong that tapestry is and how how much it really is the fabric of small businesses in throughout the country,
1: you know. And City Heights is a microcosm of that. Mm-hmm. You see Vietnamese, Laotians, you see Somalis, Ethiopians, Mexicans, you know, all in that community, I all getting it. along. Yes. One of my favorite dining destinations in San Diego is actually City Heights because of that diversity.
2: I 100% agree with that. I still dine in City Heights. I grew up there. I never, actually, I'm still in the same zip code. I still live there. But yeah, just going down the stretch of university, like just if you took us, if you started from the 805 and headed east, you know, you'll start to see, like, if you just look at the business signs, you know, and seeing how, how many languages and, Just how colorful it is, you know, literally and ethnically colorful. Like, it's fascinating. Take it all the way to 54th, you know, and you'll see so many countries and multiple continents represented just on one street.
1: And there's grocery stores. Mm -hmm. It really speaks to what the community needs. You know, um, for a long time, there were no grocery stores that were uh, what you would consider an American grocery store. Right. You know, you'd have to go to little Vietnamese Grocery stores, mm-hmm. or on El Cajon, you'd go to Wing Lee for for yeah. chicken. Yep,
2: the original Wing Lee. <laughs> yeah, with all the kitchen or chicken cages. Um, yeah, there's there wasn't really a supermarket on University for a long time.
1: For a long time.
2: Yeah, and because pe- people would just depend on these little markets, and I think grocery stores kind of overlooked City Heights as maybe not the uh, not demographic the demo. <laughs> for them, but um, and yeah, ethnic market well, ethnic markets served their particular ethnicity and community so it's always fun to go into those and see what each culture deems as their like staples their kitchen staples yeah
1: they're cooking staples mm-hmm. too like mm-hmm. there's right now i think it would be about 37th or 38th and university there is a nigerian mm-hmm. market now mm-hmm. and inside that nigerian market is a nigerian like hot Food area. Oh, really? And so, if you're just like wanting to see what Nigerians eat, mm-hmm. you can go to this place and actually eat what a lot of the people in yeah. that neighborhood yeah. are eating.
2: Yeah. And then you have like, what is it? Super casino.
1: Super casino.
2: And then you take, it, and then there's Fed Cells, you yeah. know, and go a little further. You have like Little Saigon, our tiny little Saigon, but at least we have one. It's awesome and then you go further and you see where the somalian community is and and then you go further you get to Sangdao. you know well that's on the El Cajon, but still yeah,
1: yeah. 54th and alcohol mm-hmm. that's actually one of my favorite spots oh it's so good it's so good it's so spicy <laughs> you know? Yeah. i know i go in there and i i sweat and uh-huh. i'm like invigorated by the food oh it's
2: so good yeah I, I love it it's one of my it's one of our favorites thanks for the reminder i need to head back there and then, like, even Vietnam Market, like, right there on 54th and University. Like, I grew up with those kids, essentially, you know, parents all know each other. But, like, that market has been, like, a pillar, you know, in the Viet community. You know, and they've since branched off and have had multiple larger markets. But, you know, that one definitely, it grew from a small, tiny one, you know, where near Echo, where Maxims is in that tiny, tiny strip mall in the back. And now it's there on 54th and University. And they've since grown to multiple markets. But that one, they are like, that's a perfect example of like a family, like a Vietnamese American family or just an immigrant family that came, put down roots and it continues to serve the community to this day. You know, that's what we're like at 40 years later. You know, it's pretty amazing.
1: I know um, that stretch that you talked about where there's maxims mm-hmm. and there's a uh, Paris, Paris baguette mm-hmm. right behind there, and there's a chow in the next shopping center. And Minky. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a oh, I can eat there in that community mm-hmm. in that little two, you yeah. know, two strip malls. Yeah, uh, probably five times a week. Same, it's,
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I agree. Like, there's and then you know, there's even well, whatever your craving is, like you want pho, you go to foja, right? Like that's where the hood. That's where we always ate in the hood. So that was
1: a, one of the first Vietnamese yes. uh, pho restaurants mm-hmm. in the in America.
2: Was it? Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they've been around forever. I think all of us grew up eating there. Multi, multiple generations of viet's have grown up eating there. That's like you know San Diego's pho mecca. You yeah. know, and they they've been doing the same thing forever. And a lot of the other pho chains that have come out of or that are in San Diego, basically came out of Pho hoa. So they you know cooks that formerly were there and branched off on their own. Um, so phoho is just, it's an institution, you know, and then you have minki. So whatever you're craving, you can go. And then there's bongbao hui, at hui hui, right across the street, yes. the spicy beef, uh, beef and pork noodle soup. Um, yeah, And then good sandwiches. And yeah, you really, that is one of the main stretches S- till this day.
1: I'm going to um, shout out to Cali Baguette. <laughs> it's one of my favorite places. Because you can go and drive through and get a banh mi, mm-hmm. you can get a coffee, <laughs> and you can get a, f- a great uh, Vietnamese-style baguette <laughs> without leaving your car.
2: Yeah, that's a, that is nice. There needs to be more drive-through Vietnamese food for sure. <laughs> Maybe not pho, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be hard.
2: <laughs> Egg rolls
1: and spring rolls, yeah. When you opened up in 2003 in Ibizu, mm-hmm. um in Hillcrest, what was the neighborhood like at that point?
2: It was still thriving. It, I, it was, I mean, Fifth Avenue still had all those shopping destinations, and um, there was plenty of solid restaurants still there. It was, there was tons of foot traffic, even though we were, we're on 6th in Robinson, so a little bit off the beaten path, like off the main drag. Um, but we were the, like the main corridor to through Hillcrest from downtown. So there was still, like, on the weekend, there was still tons of people walking by, so much foot traffic and just so vibrant, Uh, Mm -hmm. lots of great restaurants at that time still. Um, And it still felt like a dining destination because back then it was before Little Italy grew to become the Little Italy Italy we know now, before North Park you know, became what it is now. Before Beer moved into North Park, and and before Urban Solace moved into North Park and turned that into a dining destination, Hillcrest, downtown La Jolla, which was long, I feel like is no longer on people's radar for food, and then Gaslamp, were the the main places people would go to be out and about and dine. So, but Hillcrest felt like a lot more approachable. It felt more casual. It was like the casual potentially more ethnic offerings you know there that was the where people were i love hillcrest i still love hillcrest yeah um it's changed a lot and i think seeing so many other pockets of good food kind of pop up i mean aside from north park and aside from little italy we have now you know that stretch of park boulevard and university heights you know we have normal heights we have south park so there's all these other little pockets within you know the park areas, if you will. Yeah, uptown, midtown. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you know, lots of the scene is is much more spread out. Yeah, but I I back then Hillcrest was awesome. <laughs> Still, New News was the spot. Yeah.
1: Do you remember Yakitori Yakatori Yakitori Yakadori? That was the, the original. Or, one? Yeah.
2: Yeah we we loved having them as yeah. our neighbors. They were so awesome. And uh, I remembered I think when they opened up. Uh, Nabe was the owner that we knew. I don't know if he's still running it, but he had—he was just like freshly here from Japan. Like he, the tattooed. I don't think he had tattoos. Um, That was—I think that's one of his cooks later. Yeah. But he just—he was still learning English, and, and you know, and and it was a great, great concept, and so many people were flocking to it. But I definitely think they outgrew it really fast. Yeah. But it was so good.
1: I still have great memories of that, mm-hmm. and I remember going in there um, because they were open late, like one thirty it's, sometimes, mm-hmm. and um, I'd go in there, and I always have this habit of looking at people's shoes <laughs> because I then realize who's an industry person. Absolutely, yeah. Right? And so I looked at the shoes, and everyone was industry. Yes,
2: everyone was industry up in there. Yeah. Like, after a certain hour, you'd see just lots of chef coats and just lots of industry people it was i love that the,
1: one of the m- people that i always saw there was roger uh who's this uh, owner and main sushi chef over at hane mm-hmm. and he would bring his crew there mm-hmm. once at least once a week or you know um again late night mm-hmm. after the restaurant closed and it was always like for me it was always interesting that this is where the chef's Mm-hmm. you know and it was pre everything pre twitter and pre right. um, instagram, instagram and tw- yeah
2: where yeah location tags didn't weren't really happening then it's just i think people just talk industry yeah. people just talk to each other and once you find a place you want to share with your other industry friends you know this place is open late it's really good they have beer they, they have,
1: have beer they have cold beer they have
2: great food great food great beer snacky food it's like when you get off of work late you know being around food sometimes you don't necessarily want to do something super heavy so that was
1: perfect yeah and one of the things that i appreciate about ibizu um is you know a lot of traditional sushi chefs especially back in japan and it's only changing now is that they didn't want women Mm -hmm. touching the fish
2: right
1: you know and so that you don't see many um sushi chefs that are women in Japan mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but your between you and psycho sushi psycho
2: has some, yeah.
1: um you have a, you know you've given a lot of women opportunities to be great sushi chefs can you speak about that
2: i you know we don't see gender to be honest we just see somebody who's got a good work ethic and somebody who can you know we vibe with you know and and can be part of our work family because that's really what it is that's you know it's just jay and i it's my our mom and pop sushi shop is what i like to call it so basically when we hire somebody you know we literally are constantly working alongside these people so it really isn't about you know male or female it's just about are they going to be great to work with are they good people do they have a good work ethic you know um that's really all it is and and yeah the fact that they're women is even more badass, you know? Yeah. So that's pretty much all we saw when we hire who we hire.
1: And a sushi chef is a different kind of cook. Mm -hmm. They're actually in front of the person that are serving. So they have to have a great personality. Yes. They have to, you know, somewhat entertain and read a customer. They're a waiter and a cook at the same time.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. You wear many hats as a sushi chef. You know, you're Front of house and back of house, literally at the same time. So, yeah. personality is key, being able to have a rapport, you know. And so, that's pretty much what we look for. So, yeah. And in
1: 2017, yes. you opened up Shank and Bone.
2: 2018. Was it 18? Yeah. We took over the space in 2017. And we, it took us a few months to really get it visually and like physically where we wanted it to be and we opened February of 2018 so we're almost at the one and a half year mark
1: which is Congratulations. crazy
2: thank you it's that year went crazy fast yeah
1: in preparing for this interview and this podcast I went back and read a little bit about Vietnamese um, the history of Vietnamese food in in um, America and what it said was that um, in the '70s, after you know the war, a lot of Vietnamese came over to America. So the Vietnamese food that's being eaten here and served here, for the majority, for the most part, is speaking to a Vietnam of nostalgia and a Vietnam that does not exist anymore. Can you can mm-hmm. you give us your mm-hmm. uh, take on that?
2: Yeah, I definitely um, can see that because the first Vietnamese communities or the first Vietnamese immigrants that came here are essentially South Vietnamese. We were fleeing the war because, you know, the North the North won, if you will. And then so the South were the ones that fleed. The, and the South were the ones that were more, if not necessarily physically North and South, but also like basically those of us that fleed the war were not the ones that had a problem with colonialism. It was the communism that had a problem with the French col- French colonialism. And Vietnam was a French colony for a long time before the war. Um, that kind of was the base of what motivated the war. The French influence in the food was very much embraced by those immigrants that came here because that's our nostalgia, or that's our, our family's nostalgia, if you will. Um, so the food that you find m- in America are that the food of the South Vietnamese immigrants. So it is... Definitely going to embrace the French influence and the baguettes and even the names of foods and yeah. and you know even the patés. The patés, yes. Yeah. All the cold, you know, we call it jambon, you know, and yeah. um, the the sliced meats and the the stews. The even our savory crepe, you know, is definitely influenced by the French crepe. If, right. So.
1: And espresso, I mean. Uh, oh
2: yeah, our coffee. Our,
1: your coffee is as as good as the French. Yeah, um, it's, coffees.
2: It's you know it's strong and it's good and you know, it's a lot of our food uh, that well I guess if what America's become familiar with as far as Vietnamese food is the South Vietnamese diaspora's food essentially.
1: And you guys came here because of um, the major uh, landing point was. Uh, Camp, Camp Pendleton. Pendleton. Mm-hmm. And so between San Diego and parts of Orange County, mm-hmm. a lot of Vietnamese exactly. settled in this area.
2: Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's our proximity to Camp Pendleton. When the war ended and the mass exodus of Viets that came on ships and on boats that came with the Americans on those aircraft carriers, a holding zone was uh, Camp Pendleton. There was a big tent city there where people waited to find American sponsors or family sponsors to 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 move to. Um, and a lot of those sponsors came from Southern California due to the proximity. So that's why we have such, you know, a big enclave of Vietnamese in Garden Grove and Westminster, um, where you'll find a ton of good food, and then in San Diego. Yeah. So it makes sense that you know, we have such a big community
1: here. And it's such a rich community in the sense that, you know, you've— you have your grocery stores, you have your churches, yeah. you have, um, uh, or temples, I guess. Yeah,
2: temples, newspapers, yeah. and, uh, you know, auto body shops, and can't forget the nail shops, and there's just a lot of, you know, Vietnamese are hard workers, so. Uh,
1: and resilient. hmm yeah. You know.
2: Yes, very. I mean, we fled a war. Yeah. My parents, a lot of our parents that are here now have gone through that.
1: Are you a second Generation.
2: I think I would be considered a 1.5 generation. I, you know, we were boat people, so I was on that boat with my parents. I was a toddler, and so we spent time at refugee camps before, uh, you know, we got clearance to come here. So by the time I got here, I was three. So that was in 1980, and so I think
1: I'm the 1.5. <laughs> I think it goes. You know, um, uh, people don't appreciate that aspect of immigration, like a lot of us fled wars. Mm -hmm. A lot of like, personally, I uh, came to, um, first landed in Canada when I was two years old because my parents fled martial law. And so often, you know, what we hear are put up a a wall, put up all this. But, you know, what you don't understand, what a lot of people don't understand is the hardships and the sacrifice that immigrants Make to, uh-huh. to to come here to live an American lifestyle and uh, chase the American dream.
2: I think it makes America what it is; it makes it better. I mean, if you could, can you imagine if we didn't have all the ethnic food from all the immigrants here?
1: We would probably all die. <laughs> it would be misery. <laughs>
2: there, yeah, no. I think I think uh, immigrants have a lot to contribute, and every every immigrant group has you know, a story to tell. I mean, just even as a group, as individuals within the group, everyone's got a pretty crazy story. All these harrowing stories of like like people who went through what my family went through, boat people, the different waves of boat people. And, you know, to be honest, that's what I wanted to tell that story in a subtle or not so subtle way with the design at Shank and Bone. Yeah. So I mean, besides the motorcycles, you know, obviously the scooters, I mean, um, they're
1: that's everywhere, they're in, everywhere
2: in Vietnam, yeah. you know, the cone hats, you know, you literally will see people, well, maybe not much because helmet laws, but you would see people in cone hats and uh, riding scooters and the images on the wall. Like you won't find any element of the current government there other than so Saigon then and now is essentially the inspiration for the design. Because I had just come back from from Vietnam when we got word that we were getting that space. So it was fresh. Um, and so just seeing the juxtaposition of old and new and just how, how modern Saigon has become, or Ho Chi Minh City, if you will. But we, we it's mostly still call it Saigon. But seeing that next to, you know, street food vendors, you know, and, and a super modern building right behind that street vendor, you know, hawking her. Her, her baskets of food just made on site and then right behind her you'll see like this beautiful modern building with you know young uh professionals all over it and so we wanted to, i kind of wanted to capture that energy somehow with the design there um have it modern but not be too sleek and have it still vibrant and like kind of energetic and because saigon is so frenetic so the color elements you know the red and the yellow are you know the vietnamese flag um even before the war. So, and then, you know, the sky, or the the blue for, like, the ocean, I guess, that we had to cross to get here, right? So, I mean, it's a little bit cheesy, but it's not.
1: That's very personal. (laughs)
2: It is, exactly. So all of the the map that we have on the wall that's blown up on one wall is Saigon 1922, pre-war. So before the street names were changed to, like, war general names, communist war general names. So it's the, like, Saigon as it was pre-war. I zoomed it into... um, Focus on District 1, which is where all the action is happening in Saigon now. And, you know, the travel posters are all South Vietnamese landmarks. Or if they aren't, then they're actually, they French colonial travel posters, so they're in French. Even the photos in the bathroom, you know, if you take a little walk around, there's a lot of interesting photos of just capturing the life, the daily life, old photos, current photos. And then, of course, the Shepherd Ferry mural is you know big (laughs) it's definitely
1: it's a defining
2: it's definitely wall there yeah and so i mean his artwork is it definitely speaks to you know things we believe in and then i think the propaganda style that he does the omnipresence of you know commercialism and propaganda i mean when i was in vietnam i still saw tons of propaganda you know about like unity and loving your country and all that just it's everywhere so how Shepherd Ferry uses that style and flips it and turns it into messages of unity and peace. I mean, literally says peace on the heart piece. So that's why, you know, we were really stoked to be able to have that. And then we were basically like, what's the biggest wall I could put this on? (laughs) And and, And and you put it there. And we put it there. Literally, it's, you know, greeting you as as you walk by or drive by. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, just physically, the space really is personal um like every detail the things you find on the wall are all very
1: deliberate i i recently did a a post on eating and drinking in san diego where i asked people about walking into a restaurant Mm -hmm. that you know it's an ethnic restaurant that is in a non-ethnic place and as a person that is ethnic Mm -hmm. if i walked into a filipino restaurant and didn't see any filipinos there i'd like Question: Why are my people not eating here? Right. Your restaurant is one of the rare examples where that's not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Where you have all this craft beer, and, and you really do a great job on doing local craft beer, and you actually bring recipes, and you don't dumb it down. No. You know. Right. You're doing your your beef stews and yeah. your uh, things that probably are from your own. Right. Uh, families' recipes in restaurants. How difficult is that as an ethnic person opening up a restaurant mm-hmm. in a non-ethnic community?
2: Well, that was definitely part of the concept. I loved that question, by the way, and I loved reading through the comments because it definitely went both directions, the response you got to that. But when we conceptualized that, it's it was a concept we had been wanting to do forever, not actually thinking we might have the opportunity to do it, but... It was always, let's, I wanted to do a modern Vietnamese restaurant that Vietnamese people would eat at. Yeah. Because so often when you go to any city where there's a modern, or anywhere where there's a modern Vietnamese restaurant, a modern anything restaurant, it's watered down. But, you know, a lot of people aren't ready to go to City Heights or go to, you know, a a mom and pop, like super hole in the wall, ethnic place, be it Vietnamese, be it whatever. Because a lot of times there are language barriers and just cultural barriers and you know, people have questions. They want to know what's in their food. They have dietary restrictions, you know. So we were really hoping to bridge that gap. So conceptually, we had always said, if we ever do a Vietnamese restaurant, I want to make sure my people can come into this restaurant, take a bite of the food and be like, okay, this shit is legit. Yeah. And that was really important. So when we did the menu, when we worked on the menu, we had to make it approachable to non viets Because, like, I wanted to bridge that gap. I wanted to bring Vietnamese people or bring Vietnamese food to people who were kind of maybe just tippy-toeing into it. And so we really wanted to bring it to a broader audience. So with that, we wanted to have you know, proper explanations and have service that would be able to help somebody navigate a menu. Um, you can ask questions. You, know, you can make modifications. Boy, do we get a lot of modifications. <laughs> it was really key to be able to have something that was identifiable to a Viet. To sit down and be like, okay, it's all- there's also Vietnamese on here and still have them eat it and be like, oh, yep, that's, that's the right way. That's the way it should be. Yeah. So executing that has been interesting. We, in the beginning, we knew that the Viet's would come and check if we were legit because nobody's doing modern Vietnamese in San Diego. Well, not in a while. Um, not visible, visually the way we were doing it either. So we knew they were coming. Did we know that they would continue to come back? No, because City Heights is so close. You know, and we're not we're not here to mess with the City Heights. You know, yeah. we're here to offer an alternative um, for somebody who may not want to go there, or just maybe wants to go get Vietnamese food on a first date. You know, and have a good beer with it, and listen to some different type of music, and just have more of an experience versus you know sometimes those our mom and pop shops are there purely for the food. And, good point. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's it's definitely solid for that, but you're not gonna you know go there for an experience. You know, you're not gonna be able to have an engaging conversation with with you know your date or, or I guess the owner or the business owner. Not always. So the, the Viets came and they kept coming back. So it's been great to see now multi generational Viet families. So somebody say who was born in born here is bringing their mom and their child and you know it's really fun to see that.
1: They become the bridge.
2: Exactly. And it's, you know, or they'll bring their, um, you know, they they may have married somebody who's not Vietnamese and so they'll bring, you'll just see this like interesting dynamic of, you know, the elder who's like, you know, a little bit wary. You know, they sit down and they're kind of like, What is this place? It's Vietnamese, and then you know I'll try to speak Vietnamese to them, and that shocks them too. (laughs) So and they're like, oh, okay, so somebody here is Vietnamese. The menu has Vietnamese on it, you know, and then they eat the food, and they're like, oh, okay, this this is Vietnamese, and it's awesome. Like if you go there on a Sunday or Saturday, you'll find like big groups of Asians, and uh, during the week we're more of like the neighborhood spot. Yeah, we get the locals, the industry people, um, which has been great. Uh, getting to know all the people that live and work in the area has been awesome. But on the weekends, you'll find it to be more of a destination for for Vietz to come to because during the week they can go to City Heights or they can go to their their favorite usual spot, you know. Yeah. But they come to us to kind of experience something a little a special occasion, a little right? different. Yeah. yeah. So that has been extremely rewarding to see that you know that feedback, and so I think depending on the day you know to answer that going back to that that question you posed depending on the day when you go into Shankin Bone which is a you know in a non technically not a non a non ethnic neighborhood you will find you know lots of ethnic or vietnamese Asians just all kinds of Asians eating in there
1: you know when i posted that question i thought of my friends mm-hmm. who do run restaurants mm-hmm. that are in non traditional places and I thought how they would react to it, and I didn't want to offend anybody, but I thought it had to be a question that had to be posed, you know? I agree, yeah. As, as you read through that that thread, the comments, uh, what you do see is this divide, you know? Yes. Non-ethnic people, they're like, we don't see color. Right. Where ethnic people, they're like, we, we see, see color, color. <laughs> right? Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, for us, like, we you can go down to, to City Heights or mm-hmm. Linda Vista and Surround yourself with Vietnamese people in a Vietnamese restaurant. Yes. And you'll you might not see a single white person. Exactly. Yes. Right? For me, I go down to National City and some parts of Mira Miramesa mm-hmm. and it's ninety percent Filipino. So we do go to these places. Yes. You know, so I, I thought that was an interesting oh, yeah. break from, right. you know, of seeing, like, the comments. Well,
2: the, I mean, you see it on Yelp, too. I mean, we're, that's a four-letter word around here. But, but you see it on Yelp, too, like, when people are like, only white people were in this restaurant. Like, that's such a shitty thing to judge a restaurant by. But people do that. I'm saying, like, an Asian person going into an Asian restaurant and then, like, commenting, I only saw white people here. Like. That's not cool, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not cool, um, but it's it's, it's... it's a reality, sure, but, like, I mean, look at... You have to look at where you are, you know. You have to look at other elements, you know. You have to also look at what this restaurant is trying to do now. Um, and is it doing it, you know. Like, and so, I don't know. It's kind of reverse racism, depending on how you look at it. It can be, but I get it. Like, I get both angles. Yeah, you know? me too. I get both angles, which is why, like, we basically created that restaurant. That's kind of the inspiration was like, you know, I'm. some days you go in there and literally everybody in there is not Asian, you know, and that's okay because they're still going to get an authentic experience it's going to be different from the mom-and-pop shop in City Heights. But maybe they're not ready to go there. Maybe they want a little more out of their experience, you know, or maybe they need to know what's in their food before they eat it. You know, those of us who grow up, you know, Vietnamese, we go into a Vietnamese restaurant and we already know what's in there. You know, like you're going to go into a Filipino restaurant and you already know what, what's in there. And, okay. and half the time, you don't care. You just trust it. You're like, I don't know what it is. Maybe exactly. But it's but good. It's good. It's what I grew up eating, you know, but not everybody's ready for that. Right. So that's what I mean. Like you want to make it approachable to everybody, you know, but staying legit is the tricky part.
1: Yeah. I think that's the key in all of this is like staying true to your roots, knowing where you can Americanize mm-hmm. something. But not selling your people short. Exactly. Because you want to attract yes. those people. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, that's the person that, you know, if, if I have a dining hall full of Vietnamese people and, you know, in, in, if I were you looking out there and going, OK, I'm doing something that speaks to my own people. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah well, you know, you don't want to dismi- be dismissive just because this drives me crazy. Like I see the word hipster thrown around so much so much yes we're in North Park okay cool yes we're playing music that is I mean what do you really want to hear when you go to a Vietnamese restaurant is there isn't a template for that (laughs) you know you go to any other Vietnamese restaurant you're going to hear some Vietnamese music or some instrumental so yeah we're playing you know old school hip hop or current rock or classic rock or obscure and familiar 80s whatever but it's like crazy how instantly it's dismissed as hipster I mean yeah sure call it that that's fine but did you enjoy your food yeah are you enjoying that beer that you got, that hipster beer in North Park? With, you know, yeah, so what? But it's just, I feel like it's just dismi- it's a lot of modern things and updated things are dismissed as that, as a way of saying it's non-authentic. It's no longer authentic, that it's lost its identity. Yeah. And that's unfortunate, because most people, you know, they may not look at me as your typical Vietnamese restaurant owner. But then again, like, you know, I can roll in Vietnamese, I can do it in English, you know, I can, (laughs) you know what I mean? So like, so we're in a new era of, I don't know, an ethnic identity, you know, I can be very Vietnamese, but that's, that doesn't mean I can't, you know, do a modern Vietnamese restaurant, you know what I mean? Like, and that doesn't mean I'm going to water it down when I do.
1: Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's like, like I said, it's about understanding where your restaurant is, Mm -hmm. what your concept is, and really sticking to it. Right. You know, you can't go back and forth. You can't have it both ways. Right. 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 What you can do is understand your concept, understand who you're trying to serve and run with it.
2: Right. Well I feel like too, a lot of the I don't I love seeing people love Vietnamese food that have not necessarily had it before. What's, there's nothing wrong with that. So coming into a, a Vietnamese restaurant or any restaurant and seeing, yeah, you'll see some Asians here and there, but seeing like a non-Asian enjoying the food, they have now just come to embrace like something completely new to them. Where's the harm in that? You know, I think it's a, it's a cool thing. I think it's, I love it. I, you know, so how, how long ago did people fear sushi? You know, and now look, you know. Now
1: it's in (laughs) 7-Eleven.
2: I know. Seriously. Literally. Yeah, I mean, back then it was like, you know, sushi bars had to have, like, a the ones that really were doing well didn't have very many, like, Japanese sushi chefs. You saw, I mean, that was us. We didn't have, we started out with a very Japanese sushi chef, and he was intimidating to a lot of people, you know. And nowadays, people are looking for that. Yeah. But back then, like, early 2000s, late, you know, I don't know, late 90s, people were, they needed something to kind of bridge that that gap and hold their hand through the experience, you know. So having a sushi chef that was, you know, like energetic and fun and probably not Japanese was like a little safer, you know, because they could walk them through the, the food a little better. And having, nowadays, it's just that, that it's flipped, you know. Yeah. People are looking for very, very Japanese places because now everyone's a connoisseur. Everyone is a critic. Oh God! not so <laughs> kidding. you know. So I mean, it. But it takes that for people to come to love something, and for it to become a new norm.
1: Yeah. So. Well, I think what you did here at uh, Shank and Bone is what a lot of Filipino restaurants um, have not been successful in doing: is creating a space where it's traditional in flavor and in dishes, but yet acceptable to a mainstream, non-ethnic. Population, that's a difficult task.
2: I, I can ima- see. I think too. I don't. know, I'm kind of just, if speculating, if I may. Like every ethnicity, ethnic every ethnic food that has become very mainstream or is growing to become mainstream, has one dish that is like the the dish. Yeah. Like Japanese food has sushi. Yeah. Now we have ramen, but um, you know Vietnamese food has pho, and then also banh mi, and then you know Thai food has curry. Right.
1: Yeah.
2: But I don't think there is one yet for Filipino food.
1: Great point.
2: You know, I I think um, we need to make one, make it happen.
1: Chicken adobo is very accessible. Uh, Yeah.
2: Pancit is very, you know, lumpia. But it's just not become like iconic of that, that ethnic food. Right. You know, um, that's just kind of my speculation. So you need to get your Filipino chefs up on that
1: i know (laughs) i know a few are trying you (laughs) know
2: yeah no i know and and i'm excited to see like the movings and shakings there because i think that might be the next i think vietnamese food is having its moment um it's definitely growing but i think maybe next could potentially be filipino food here at least in san diego because there's so many filipinos here
1: i think there's like a hundred thousand filipinos in san diego county i
2: feel like there should be more yeah like that i I mean because there's so many pockets So you have Mira Mesa and then you have like down south. So there's, you know, multiple pockets of of Filipino communities, I feel like.
1: Well, personally, I I hope that's the case, too, because we need to get off the steam table um, (laughs) and turo turo joints and get into sit down restaurants like yours where... Mm -hmm. You know, you can have a good craft beer mm-hmm. and you can have, um, you know, in some cases a cocktail mm-hmm. and Filipino it up, you know. You can, right. instead of using limes or lemons, you're using calamansi yes. to, to flavor some of yeah. your cocktails. Yeah. Um, so I, I see there's a huge um, potential because the population's here, mm-hmm. but I also think that it can't be too fusion-y. True. Right. Because what ends up happening is people um, instead of embracing the fusion they're just wrapped up in confusion
2: right yeah <laughs> there's so many chefs in san diego that are filipino though yeah. that aren't doing filipino food right so i think it, it's moment will come
1: yep you have guys like uh philip esteban mm-hmm. at uh, you know with the ch projects you have um craig Jimenez who is now the the corporate chef of social syndicate
2: oh uh-huh. and
1: so you're seeing guys was supernatural yep he was supernatural but it, hey, before craig. that he also worked um, for CH. He uh-huh. hired Phil at CH ah, uh, uh-huh. for, for neighborhood and then craft and commerce. So we're there. Yeah, you, know, we're, yeah, you we totally just, are. Yeah, we're, we just need a moment. And yeah. we should look to you as someone. <laughs> no, uh, no honestly, because <laughs> you have navigated those very uh, difficult waters with a plum. And I Thank think you. your restaurant should be lauded for doing that. And part of the reason for doing that poll on eating and drinking in San Diego was because A, I knew you were coming in and we could talk <laughs> about this. But also because I think non ethnic people should understand where some of us are coming from when right. it comes to that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think too, where we were located made it I just made it work better for us. Because I, I mean, like I said, I grew up in City Heights, not far from there, and that's still my hood, still my home. Yeah. And then, but I also like hung out in North Park a lot. You know, I went to school with Jefferson for like a couple of years when I was really little. A lot of the people in the neighborhood that have businesses in the neighborhood are already people that we consider friends, you know. So I felt like I had a good grasp on both sides, I guess. My foot was in both communities pretty yeah. well. So I think it's definitely challenging it still is and it never will cease being challenging but i think having that grip on north park or that grasp of north park and knowing what we were coming into while also knowing my roots, definitely worked so far
1: so the answer to that question that i posed on eating and drinking is (laughs) go to shank and bone understand how they're doing (laughs) this because they're navigating the waters well and um, honestly, you're, you're doing a great job. Thank you, Edwin. I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Can you tell us the addresses of both your restaurants and how we can follow you on social media, please?
2: Yes. Um, so Shank and Bone is located at 2930 University Avenue. We are right in front of the North Park sign. Um, we are Shank and Bone on Instagram. Um, you find us on Facebook as well. Ibisu Sushi and Bar is located on 6th Avenue in Hillcrest. And that's 37656th Avenue. And we are also on Instagram and Facebook.
1: And I, I wanted to give that a plug because, again, you're doing a great job staying in Hillcrest because we know how difficult that neighborhood is. Oh, yeah. Especially in 2019. Yes. Um, hopefully you're there uh, to see the resurrection of Hillcrest when it comes up about.
2: I hope it happens.
1: And uh, you deserve every accolade that comes to you. And Thank thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thank you, Edwin. Thanks for
0: having me. It's been fun. You've been listening to Dish It Up, a monthly collaboration between Pacific Magazine and the Facebook group Eating and Drinking in San Diego, and is hosted on the UT Podcast Network. A special thanks to our sound editor, John Kelly, for making sure you can hear us loud and clear. I'm Leslie Hackett, editor-in-chief of Pacific Magazine, and I'm here to wrap things up with a few food and drink events coming to San Diego. Head to the fair for a fun day of carnival rides and internationally recognized beer during the San Diego International Beer Festival. From June 14th through 16th, Sip samples from nearly 200 breweries while also enjoying some beer education demonstrations. For more information about the Delmore Fairgrounds event, go to sandiegobeerfestival.com. On June 15th, head downtown and break bread with some of San Diego's most visionary artists during a rooftop fine dining experience at Idea One. An artist at the table, SENA Sensorial, is designed to engage all five senses throughout the night. Find details at vanguardculture.com. Several walkabout dining experiences are taking place in June, including the June 17th Taste of Gaslamp, June 19th Taste of Vista, June 19th Taste of Little Italy, and the June 30th Taste of Adams Avenue. Explore the varied food and drink offerings of these neighborhoods while getting some steps in, too. Finally, get your fill of chili as the famous annual OB Street Fair and Chili Cook-Off returns to San Diego. Stroll down Newport Avenue for other treasures being offered, too. Head to OceanBeachSanDiego.com for more info. This is just the first serving of great food and drink events. More can be found at PacificSanDiego.com. Be sure to follow Pacific on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at PacificSD for more cool events to keep you busy all year long. Cheers!